Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. It is certainly a time to be thankful, not just for Christians, but for all the world to be thankful because of who Jesus is and the gift of Jesus. So we're going to read through uh, the narrative of the birth of Jesus this morning, and I really don't know how long it'll take. It may not take very long. I don't have a great track record for that, but it might not take very long. Um, We will make some comments as we go along, and hopefully by the end of our service together, uh, if it has not felt very much like Christmas this year for you, that you will have an appreciation, maybe a sense of why it should. Um, I want to begin, though, before we read, with uh, asking you, if at all possible, to come back this evening for the children's uh, drama. Because... Um, of what it means to the children to have people who take uh, their work seriously. Um, children are um, not professional performers. I think it's funny when places pretend that they are. Um, it will not be a, a, a great accomplishment of drama or theater this evening, um, but it means something when Christian people affirm to children by their presence uh, in a seat, that what they are doing, because they are doing it in honor of the Lord Jesus, matters. There are not many events that happen to children that are not our own that we show up and give our attendance and support of. And when we do, it's usually considered the extra mile. You might hear a parent Say, thank you for coming and supporting my child and the, the children that the work to do those things. But if ever it was a good thing to do, it is to reaffirm for the children that the work they do in honor of the Lord is worthy of their time and their energy. So that's my plea that you will come back tonight, not to be impressed, but to impress upon the children the importance of what this means. Uh, with that said, we will read now. Uh, from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, verse 26 of chapter 1. We'll break this up into the following. Uh, Reading down through verse 32 at the beginning. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, Of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Let's pause there. There is, I think, when you study the Bible, a great benefit to marking on the pages. And if you'll do that uh, this morning or in your own time, you will often see communication in the context of a passage beyond the mere words. And what you will see in these verses that we start out with, verse 26 through 33, is a shift from humility and humble beginnings to unbelievably great promises at the end. For instance, what do I mean by humility? If you look in verse 26... Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God. That means big thing is happening here. 
Gabriel, who appears in the Old and the New Testament with promises of the Messiah. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Galilee was not one of the great metropolitan areas of the time. Galilee was a collection of of villages and places under the Roman Empire. It was to the northern, uh, less prominent areas of of, um, the Jewish homeland. It was not associated with the southern kingdom of Judah, with the city of Jerusalem. It was not where educated people came from. It was not where powerful people came from. Galilee was a northern region. And it was made up of a collection of villages. And one of those villages was Nazareth generally considered to be one of the least or lesser of the villages of Galilee, which of itself was not a place of prominence. Now, this is something, and maybe I'm ignorant here, but this is something that I think we can relate to. Um, We are from uh, New Paris or the surrounding area. This is not a place of great prominence. Um, This is not a place where you'll see politicians making trips. Uh, This is not a place... Uh, where people uh, have great expectation that something great or spectacular is going to come from here. In fact, the idea that people would think something great or spectacular is going to come from the village or community where you live seems a little absurd to me because I am not used to anything like that. And yet, there are people who grow up in prominent places where they know that people who come from this school people who come from this place, people who come from this background are meant to succeed. That is totally foreign to me. I am not one of those people, nor have I come from one of those places. And I think that's the same for most of us here today. Uh, Nazareth was a place that had similarities. It was a place of working people. It was a place of poor people. It was not a place people visited. It was not a place people made treks to. So when it says that God visited this place by sending an angel there. There is an absurdity to what's being communicated. If God is going to send an angel someplace, he's not going to send it to Nazareth in Galilee. Do you understand the idea here? So we start very humble. Then we proceed further down the chain. Verse 27 to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. To a virgin, which means to a young woman. In fact, the word virgin and young woman are often used synonymously to be interpreted by the context. Here we know the context is not just a young woman, but also a virgin because we're told elsewhere she did not know a man. Nevertheless, we are proceeding down the ethnic food chain here. We're proceeding down the cultural food chain Not just talking about Jews, not just talking about Galilee, not just talking about Nazareth, but then of the people in Nazareth, we're talking about a young girl. A girl. Maybe she was 16, maybe she was 22, I have no idea. She was betrothed to be married. She was not a prominent person. She was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And then we're given this clarifying remark, of the house of David. In other words, somewhere hundreds of years prior in his lineage, royalty had once proceeded. But it was a long time ago. And carpentry in Nazareth is a far fall from royal dominance in Jerusalem in the empire that was once Israel. 
Nevertheless, this is where God visits the woman. It's humble, 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 humble. The message to Mary, whose name we're given in 27, comes to us in verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Highly favored one. God has chosen, and this is a shocking announcement, to favor this particular person highly. It's interesting because if you know much, and you can be forgiven if you don't, about the angel Gabriel, he appears in the Old Testament with the announcement to a prophet named Daniel, who is himself a captive slave uh, from a demolished empire living in Babylon, and his announcement is, Daniel, you are greatly beloved in heaven. And here Gabriel shows up with a similar announcement to a young woman. Rejoice, highly favored one. Why? What does it say? The Lord is with you. This morning, uh, teaching in Sunday school, I said there is one question to which the answer you provide to that question will determine more about the life that you go forth to live than any other question in the world. And it is, it is unmistakably true that this question is the most important one. And it is one of the most disregarded questions in our current day. And that question is, do you believe in the God of the Bible and the Son in whom He sent? If you believe in the God of the Bible... If you believe in the Son whom He sent, then you have a relationship with God. Do you know what that means? It means the Lord is with you. It means the Lord is with you. And whatever panicky thing is about to happen to you, whatever life decision is on the horizon, you will protect that relationship that you have with God because He is light in what is otherwise darkness and confusion. Him being with you is more important to you than anything else. Rejoice, the Lord is with you. Is the Lord with you? Apart from the Lord, you will do what is practical, what is opportunistic, what is in your best interest. And at the end of that conclusion, only God knows how it will end. And it may not end well, because if you break fellowship with the Lord to pursue your own passions, if you break fellowship with the Lord to compromise the integrity of your heart, if you break fellowship with God into sin, or break fellowship with God because of lust and covetousness, if you take a door that opens to you because it might provide the best practical outcome without acknowledging God in all of your ways, who knows how it will go? But if you take every opportunity before you with this one question... How can I protect and honor my relationship with God who sent His Son to die on the cross that He might know me and be at peace with me? Then no matter darkness comes, you will know the Lord is with you. The light of the world is with you. As you trudge out into darkness, you don't know what's ahead. You know, in Daniel, there's the verse that the Lord knows. This is in Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving to God. You know what is in the darkness and in you is light. You don't know what's in the darkness. You don't know what 2020 brings. You don't know what next week brings. But the Lord knows what's in the darkness. He sees what you can't see. 
And in him is light, clarity, hope, life. Rejoice, highly favored one. Why? The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Verse 29. So we start very humble. And then we transition. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. I bet she was. And considered what manner of greeting this was. Not the kind of one that you receive all the time. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. The Lord saves, God delivers, deliverer, Savior, Jesus. Verse 32 is the shift where we go from humble to greatness. Here's the promise to this little girl in Nazareth. He will be and I've boxed it in, great. And he will be called Son of the Highest. I boxed that in too. And the Lord God will give him, I boxed this next one in, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign, I boxed that word in, over the house of Jacob forever. That is a word to box in. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So there is a dramatic shift. You are betrothed to a man of the house of David, but your son will sit on the throne of David. His reign will never end. He will be great, and he will be called son of the highest. So let's just do a little prophecy test 101. Are you ready? Let's test the Bible. Let's see if the Bible is true. Question number one, is Jesus considered great? In the world around us, all over the world, now we know individually we would get different answers on a poll, but by and large, the overwhelming answer, how is that question answered worldwide? Yes. I guess the Bible's true. I guess the Bible's true. Because 2,000 years ago, before nearly half the global population pronounced that Jesus Christ is Lord, like we have today, before the church popped up all over the globe on every continent, like we have today, before Sunday became a day where all of God's people the world over dedicated themselves to separate and worship the name of Jesus, before all of that, the Bible said, His name will be great. Is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even where it is hypocritically great, even where people are not genuine in their worship, even when people are just giving him token, excuse me, acknowledgments, there are acknowledgments of the greatness of Jesus. His name, he will be great. He will be called son of the highest. You go all over the world today and ask, Hey, who is the Son of God? And one name comes back over and over again, no matter where you go. Jesus. Jesus is called the Son of God. Do you believe He is the Son of God? Well, that's a different question. But He is called Son of the Highest. 2,000 years ago, this was written. Say, well, you know, this was written, you know, after the, the fact, after Jesus died on the cross by His followers. It was still 2,000 years ago. No matter what secular critic you ask. Is the name of Jesus great? Yes. 
and the unfulfilled promise that is coming, the promise reiterated throughout the New Testament, He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why we sing that song. What child is this who is laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Who is this child? And then what's the chorus? This, this is Christ the King. That's what separates Christians from everyone else in the world. This is Christ the King. This is not just a baby who would grow up and die on a cross. This is not just a baby who said some really compelling things. This is not just a baby who would grow up into a man who would manipulate some disciples, who would go out and die for him and write a bunch of books and then a bunch of gullible people would believe and missionaries would go. No, no, no. This, this is Christ the King. Haste, haste to bring him laud, to bring him honor, to bring him glory, to bring him praise. Be fast. Christian people who answer this one question about Jesus in the affirmative, who truly believe it in their hearts, will not choose to live in sin. They will not violate repetitively in practice the command of their king, knowing that doing so will separate their relationship from their God who is with them, will jeopardize the inheritance which otherwise they've been promised by the Holy Spirit. They will not do that. This one question determines whether or not money is your God whether or not opportunity is your God, whether or not power is your God, whether or not reputation is your God, whether or not friends and family become your God, whether your children are your God, whether your marriage is your God. This, this is Christ the King, my King. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Is the only cross-reference we'll make. Chapter 1, verse 26. Often when we talk about the gift of Jesus, we talk primarily about the personal blessing it is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sin. That's not wrong. But there is more in the gift of Jesus than the forgiveness of sins. There is more than that in the gift of Jesus. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm not trying to offend anyone here. I know this applies to me. You can decide if it applies to you. But listen to how Paul writes this encouraging statement to the Corinthian church, right? Imagine receiving this letter. Here we go, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. Now, (laughs) how would you feel if a good friend came up to you and said, Hey, John, you know yourself, man, and you know you're not very wise. You know, well, hold on a second, you know, I mean, I did okay, I graduated, come on. Yeah, but this is how Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Look around, there are not many, not a much of the flesh, not many mighty, not a much of a bunch of Division I athletes running around, a bunch of army rangers running around in here. Not many noble, the high upper aristocracy. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. 
God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Ask Nebuchadnezzar about that in Daniel chapter 4, the great king of Babylon. Why does God put Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem to poor people in Nazareth? Because God has chosen the weak to put to shame the mighty, the base. Think about that. In Jesus, there is an opportunity for every person in the world, whether they are a slave or a woman as the most despised people in the Roman Empire, or whether they are rich and mighty, He has given them the gift of the opportunity of greatness. Think about that. This is too often neglected. The gift of Jesus means that you have an opportunity to be a son or daughter of the Most High God. To receive an eternal inheritance from Him. So that when we stand before the Lord, we will receive glory and honor from the great God of heaven. While the mighty and the strong and the politically elite and the powerful and the wealthy are put to shame. Why? Because they did not seek greatness in their God. Look at what the next verse says. You know, he did all this so that no flesh could glory in his presence. There is not going to be a single president, a single CEO, that stands up and takes pride in his greatness before God. Why? Because Reggie Osborne's going to be right there receiving an inheritance from the King of Kings, and they're not. If they are, it's got nothing to do with all of their money. As a matter of fact, by pouring my life into his service, I will receive a reward that they, if they have poured their lives into serving themselves and their companies and their businesses, will not get. Verse 30, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. That relationship is the source of true greatness. That relationship, being in Christ Jesus, is your one shot for true, everlasting greatness, reward, inheritance, glory, honor. That's it. We are, man, we are a discontented people in our country. Have you ever stopped and paused and thought about that? How many people are dissatisfied with their lives? Are your children starving? Are you afraid some warlord from Eden is going to come and wipe us all out? Carl, maybe talk to Carl. He's got inside information. I mean, he, that was a knowing chuckle back there. Oh, but Carl's been a missionary overseas. Do you not have heat in the wintertime? What do you... Look at our clothes. Oh, my clothes aren't very nice. Seriously. 
We all look fine, better than fine. Why are Americans so depressed? Why are Americans so frustrated? Why are they so consumed with their careers? Why are they so consumed with their possessions? Why are they so consumed with their money or lack thereof? Why are they so consumed with what they don't have? Should we not be the most content and satisfied and grateful and happy and pleasant people in the world? We are the opposite. We are among the most frustrated, medicated people in the world. How much of that comes from the human condition that strives for greatness and recognition in other things and looks at themselves and knows, I don't measure up. How much of it comes from a dissatisfaction, not with what we have, but with who we are? You are not enough, brothers and sisters. You are not good enough. You will not achieve greatness on your own. You know, Allison went into the Hall of Fame this week. Sorry, I didn't plan to mention this, right? That's not true greatness. You won't get there on your own. There's one path to it. And the gift of Jesus extends that opportunity to every person on the planet. Why? Because God chooses the humble things, the weak things, the despised things, the neglected things to put to shame people who are consumed with power and money and glory and fame and possession and their own status. He will put them to shame. Don't be found on that side of the fence. If you stand before God, having lived a life in pursuit of those things, you will be found on the side of the fence of the people being put to shame by shepherds and carpenters and poor people in villages all world over. Put to shame. This is the first message from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. Let's continue with the story. I want to read verses 34 through 38 from Luke chapter 1. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Virgin, how can I have a child? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now we have the visit between Mary and Elizabeth that follows. They're both pregnant. And in Elizabeth's response to all that Mary tells her, she sees by faith the Lord, the Messiah. In verse 46, Mary responds to Elizabeth. God's word. These words. It's Mary's prayer. Never had one of my prayers recorded in God's word. Yes, she is highly favored here. Here it is. Listen. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Have they not? 
Absolutely. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. That is a testimony that will put to shame CEOs and presidents and kings. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. I have been working on my prayer life since last Sunday morning's message. And I have been using the Lord's Prayer over and over again as an introduction to my own requests. And over and over again, hammering away at the phrase, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. You are holy. We are called to be holy. And Mary here, in the middle of a prayer of thanksgiving, is compelled to acknowledge God is holy. Meaning, I, who am not holy, do not have any reasonable expectation that He should be with me. He is holy and yet desires me. And His mercy is on those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered, here are two phrases in this verse. The proud in the imagination of their hearts. You know what that means? They are proud, (laughs) not because of real accomplishments. (laughs) They are proud in that they imagine internally that they have something to be proud over. (laughs) They are proud in the, um, it's make-believe accomplishments. It's make-believe status. They are proud. Why? Because they've done great things. That's the imaginative part. That they think the things they have done are great and worthy to be proud of. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. How mighty are you if you can be deposed? Generally, when we look back on history... The kings that are deposed are not the ones remembered as great and mighty kings. And he has exalted the lowly. What is God doing here in Luke chapter 1 with the coming of his own son into the world? What is he doing that he keeps choosing the lowly over and over and over again? What is the message behind the message? What is the hope and the invitation extended to you? Mary sees it. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There is no partiality with God. The poor, the hungry, the destitute, he'll take those. Those who think they have a place before God because they are wealthy, rich, powerful, he sends away. Verse 54, he has helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Okay, we will skip ahead now. Luke chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Could say a lot about current misinterpretations of this, but we'll not. We'll move on. Talk to me later if you're interested. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David. The king's city is where he had to go because he was from the line of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Again, the theme. Do you see it? Wraps the baby in swaddling clothes, in the clothes used in burial, in what was there, what was around, what was present. Laid him in a manger, a trough for feeding animals, because there was no room for the king of kings to stay because a king on the earth had demanded that his family give an account. Total humility. This is how God has chosen to bring a son into the world. Verse 8. There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory, I assume, that is present at the Mount of Transfiguration that terrifies the disciples. The Shekinah glory of God that is somehow visible as a fog light surrounding the shepherds, and they are terrified. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. <laughs> For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Don't sell that phrase short. Don't sell that phrase short. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. The sign will be his abject poverty and humiliation. Of all the babies staying in Bethlehem to be registered, you will find him in the lowest position. Without a room in a feeding trough behind an inn. This will be the sign. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, which is kind of New King James language there. What the language communicates is an army. It's the language for a troop, a vast troop, an army of angels. Praising God and saying, now if they were not afraid before, this would, this would do the trick. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men. We have talked about that phrase before. Not peace, goodwill 
among men. In other words, the coming of Jesus Christ does not mean there will never be another war on this earth. There will never be another consequence of sin on this earth. There will never be another bad thing that another person does to another person on this earth. It doesn't even mean what the hymn says. That the right will always win and the wrong will always lose. It doesn't mean that. The angels are singing glory to God on the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill to men from God. Not that men will treat other men with goodwill. Not that men will have peace with other men. No. This gift of a Messiah who will save you from your sins and bring you into a peaceful relationship with God for eternity is an olive branch, is an extension of God's intention of peace and love and goodwill toward all people on the earth. Bull. Think about that. How wrong are people who hurl criticisms at God because men do evil things to other men? As if none of us are sinners, none of us are rebels, and all of us are perfect and holy before a righteous God deserving none of the consequences of sin among us. How wrong when what God has done is extended a method of reconciliation at the cost of his own son toward us so that angels, literally messengers, come from God declaring, this is your offering of peace. And there has never been another one and there will never be another one. That's why there is no other name given among men by which we might be saved. This is it. This is God's extension of benevolence to you. Glory to God in the highest. That he would do this. It's not just this gift. That's why it's a gift. It's not wages paid to those who've earned it. It's not an opportunity to those who deserve it. It's love. It's charity. It's mercy. Verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They had a religious revival. <laughs> you would too. Spiritual move. You should too. I don't know that they were in a highly spiritual mood before the angels showed up, but this was an awakening. If ever there was one. And verse 16 is an understatement that they came with haste. They wasted no time. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by shepherds. Of all the heralds, of all the announcers, James gives announcements on Sunday morning, does a pretty good job. There's announcers at football games and basketball games and news channels. Of all the great news carriers of the world, there is a contingent of shepherds who were one night around Bethlehem that will not shut up about this event which they took place, which took place among them. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard 
and seen as it was told to them. There is, and we'll stop with this, there is symbolism in this. That the king of kings, born in the city of the king, is taken the lowly status, okay? There is symbolism in being wrapped in burial clothes on the night of his birth. And there is symbolism in shepherds being the herald of his coming. Do you know why there were shepherds around Bethlehem? Do you know why there were so many of them? Because Bethlehem is just a short journey to Jerusalem. And do you know what they needed in Jerusalem? They needed sheep. Lots and lots and lots of sheep. And they needed lambs. They needed perfect, spotless, unblemished lambs. There was a huge market for them. If you remember, Jesus uh, tears down a market because of the commerce involved around these little animals. They needed them to be offered as sacrifices in their capital. Where over the course of a year, millions of journeys would be made to offer sacrifices to God. And so the shepherds are in their fields watching their sheep to supply the sacrificial blood to atone for sin of the people to be offered by the priests and to attend and to hear that God sends angels to announce and to attend and to herald the coming of the King of Kings. He sends them. And he sends John the Baptist, who shows up. And when he sees Jesus, after the baptism announces, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God is not without a plan in any of this. He chooses the lowly and the weak to put to shame the great and the strong. And folks, you this morning have a choice. And you have a choice tomorrow and the day after about whether or not this will be your king and your God. And by faith, you will take this shot at greatness. This shot, this opportunity from God at an inheritance. This life or whether or not you will be led into the pursuit of a billion different things and passions, which he says no to, or which he says are not best. You choose with your life. And if you choose a life apart from God and his leadership, if you choose to make yourself great through other means, if you choose to enjoy passions and desires apart from what God would say and lead you to do, if you choose that, if you stumble off into the darkness which only God can see into in the first place and fumble around there hoping for some magic pot of gold at the end of a rainbow, you will be put to shame by simple widows orphans, and lowly people who chose to honor God 
because he extended even to them an opportunity to be his, to be kings, to be queens, to have an inheritance forever, to rule and reign with his son, Jesus Christ. You will make clear to the rest of us, to the world, what you truly believe about Jesus with the decisions that you make. A tree is known by its fruits. And the warning of John the Baptist, the warning of Jesus, is that God will judge and call your life into account. What a gift and a blessing <laughs> that I do not have to go out and make some great name of myself, that I don't have to go out and buy some great big thing, that I don't have to go out and, and, and have some great big job, that I don't have to... I don't have to get myself into any social status. What's my calling? To love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love my neighbor as myself. That's the call of a Christian. And that's God's peace and goodwill extended to you. And man, I hope you'll take it. Man, I hope you'll take it. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, the gratitude that we should have towards you at this time of year should almost be inexpressible, and I hope that it is. Father, I ask that you will humble those of us who would exalt ourselves in pride of our own achievements or possessions or status in the vain imaginations of our hearts. Forgive us. Forgive us. Help us to take the counsel of your word and to humble ourselves before you that you might lift us up. You are precious. More precious than gold and silver. More precious than a great name. More holy and righteous than we'll ever be. More respectable. More true more worthy of our devotion. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for every detail of the circumstances of his birth and life and death and resurrection. Thank you for every meaningful piece of it. Help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear the message behind the message. That the life that the world would pursue is not the life of glory that you would lay out for your people. Help us to trust you, to put our faith in you, and to cherish our relationship with you and your people. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.